Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, well, it's great to be here this morning. I was uh, just thinking before I came up that I have such a long history with Etzheim and a lot of the people here. I actually met my wife, now wife, about, was about nine years ago. Uh, at the old, someone earlier I heard heard them call it the old uh, bunker off of Campbell Road. So it's great to be here, and, and I really love this community, and I'm blessed to be able to share. Uh, today, I want to get into some prophecy discussion. And, you know, when we're talking about prophecy and the return of the Lord, I think there are many reasons and many things we go through in life that make us long for the return of the Lord. And I, I'm sure I'm in good company when I say sometimes I'm sure we all feel like uh, the sooner the better on that front, Lord. The sooner you come, the sooner we have this kind of fallen world behind us, uh, the better. Is there just a little static or is that okay? Okay. So we feel like the sooner the better. You know, there's so many struggles we go through in life. Uh, at the top of the list for me would be maybe Dallas drivers and Dallas traffic. Uh, yeah, it's like too many near-death experiences, Lord. Uh, we're, we're ready to go home. So, but as I think about prophecy and the study of prophecy and why we should study prophecy, I think a lot of times there is an emphasis on the imminence or the nearness of the events, right? So a lot of people get into Bible prophecy because they think that the return of the Lord is just right around the corner. It's just gonna happen tomorrow or next month or next year maybe, or definitely in five years. I mean, how could it be 10 years? And so oftentimes when people are talking about prophecy and emphasizing prophecy, there is a focus on imminence or nearness. And I don't think that is always wrong. Obviously, I'm sure we all know of extremes. Uh, there was a book, I think it was, what, 10 reasons or however many reasons the rapture is gonna take place in 1988. So we know there are extremes. 88 reasons, that's right. It was like 88 reasons the rapture is gonna be in 1988. So thank you. Yeah, a lot of times there's this focus on the imminence and the nearness and we're getting closer and closer, and I think that's good to a degree if it's not taken to an extreme. But one thing I always wanna mention to people about the study of prophecy, the return of the Lord, the end times, is that these prophecies have been in the Bible. If you go back to Moses, who probably wrote and compiled some of the earliest prophecies, these prophecies have been in the Bible for roughly 3,500 years, going back to the earliest ones. And if you go through the Hebrew prophets, you're talking 27, 2,500 years. You go to the time of Yeshua and the apostles, you're talking 2,000 years. And all of the prophets, including Yeshua, the Messiah, including the apostles, they emphasized prophecy and the return of the Lord as a central part of their message. And yet, they were all thousands of years away from many of the events that they spoke about, taught about, emphasized. So when you look at it from that angle, it's hard to say that prophecy only matters by virtue of the fact that we're so, so close, 
Does that make sense? Although, again, we are getting closer, but it's hard to make a biblical argument that the centrality of prophecy is rooted primarily in imminence or something like that. At a more basic level, this is the way I look at it, and this is the way I explain why I think prophecy is about 27% of the Bible. So there's a lot of it in there. I think at the more basic level, the way I understand it is that every generation has a responsibility to prepare for the return of the Lord in some way. Every generation is a link in the chain, preparing for the return of the Lord. And we don't know exactly where we are on the timeline, but that doesn't mean that the urgency of the prophetic scriptures and the message of Bible prophecy is any less relevant or important for us because every generation is gonna add something, every generation is gonna receive something from the Lord and is going to be responsible for moving this message of the prophetic scriptures forward. And that's one of the main reasons why I think it's so important for us as a community, as a messianic community and the broader church world to return to a serious study of the prophetic scriptures and proclamation of the prophetic scriptures and doing it in a way that is biblical and rooted in really solid Bible study and historical analysis in a way that is less sensationalized and is more focused on the responsibility that we have every generation because I would love it if the Lord comes back in a few years, 10 years, 20, uh, in the Bible study after, maybe we can get into some of the specifics on that front. But it's, it's hard to know, but that doesn't make the message of the prophets any less relevant. And so what I wanted to do today was talk about one of the most important prophetic passages in the Bible. Uh, many of you will be familiar with it, and that is Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter nine. And a big part of what my ministry is doing, as David mentioned, is uh, developing Bible study resources around prophecy uh, so that we can be those links in the chain and so that as we get closer and closer to the return of the Lord, we can strengthen the foundations and strengthen those links in the chain because I believe the Lord is going to use passages like Daniel 9 in a major way. And so this morning, I want to talk about some of the contents from kind of the first part of my book. And then in the Bible study, we'll be covering uh, later on when we do uh, the teaching of Yeshua and, and the abomination of desolation, we'll do some stuff from kind of the end of the book. And if uh, you want to know what's in the middle, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, nice big books like this. It's also great if you have trouble sleeping at night. Uh, a nice big prophecy book is sometimes better than Tylenol PM. Uh, but I want to look at a framework for how we should approach Daniel chapter 9, this famous, infamous, infamous, controversial passage. And when we're talking about Daniel 9, we are encountering Daniel at the end of his life, actually. So this is a prophecy that is given to Daniel when he is already in his 80s, most likely. So Daniel has already been in Babylonian exile for about 70 years. And Daniel is studying the writings of the prophet Jeremiah at the beginning of Daniel chapter nine. And he realizes that the return from Babylonian exile 
is right around the corner. He realizes that it should have been happening at any moment, really, or within a very short period of time. So Daniel devotes himself to prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord. And then he has this encounter with the angel Gabriel. And I'll just go to verse uh, Daniel 9, 23. Gabriel basically tells him, your prayers have been answered, Daniel, so I've come to give you understanding. And I love what Gabriel says. He says, give heed to this message and gain an understanding of the vision. Give heed to this one, gain an understanding of this one. This one is very important for you and your people. And he says, 70 weeks have been appointed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to purge iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal the vision and the prophet and to anoint a most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the going forth of a word to restore and to build Jerusalem until the anointed prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. But after the 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. But his end will come with a flood, even to the end, there will be war, desolations are decreed. And he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations, the utter desolation will come even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. It's a little bit of a maze. It's a little bit complicated in terms of all of the different history and all the different prophetic elements there. And one of the reasons, there are three main reasons why this passage is so controversial. Uh, one famous Old Testament scholar called Daniel chapter nine, the dismal swamp of the Old Testament. So it's not exactly a hopeful metaphor because it's been so controversial and because Jews and Christians have produced so many different interpretations of this passage. And as I think about this and try to explain, you know, why is it so controversial? Why has it produced so many different interpretations? I think one way of thinking about it is that Daniel 9 puts us really at the intersection, you could say, of three major debates in the world of biblical studies and theology that have major implications for all of these different groups. So first of all, you have a debate between those who think it's non-Messianic versus Messianic. So if you're to read the literature or on the website of different Orthodox Jewish groups or anti-missionary groups, they are very adamant that Daniel 9 has nothing to do with the Messiah. And the subtitle of my book is Israel, the Messiah, and the end of the age in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. So I'm coming from a perspective like many of you that, no, this is about the Messiah, and it's one of the most important messianic prophecies. And so when you come to Daniel 9, you're right there at the center of that debate. But that's not all. You're also at the center of the debate between preterists and futurists. And in a nutshell, preterists are people who think that most of the prophecies or a lot of the prophecies in the Bible had only a historical fulfillment. So they'll read Daniel 9 
and they'll say, this was all fulfilled in the time of the Maccabees or maybe in 70 AD in the time of the Romans. Preterists will read the book of Revelation in a very historical way as well. It's all about the Roman Empire. This is, you know, same thing with Matthew 24, the teaching of Yeshua, the Olivet Discourse. They'll say, this isn't really about the end times and all that. This is just about historical events and there's kind of all this symbolism used. And that's a major school of thought going back to the church fathers. And so that preterist interpretation of Daniel 9, I would say, is the preferred method of probably like 50% of the Christians that you're gonna meet. Even in the Messianic movement, I've encountered uh, preterist teachers on Daniel 9. Futurists, on the other hand, are people like myself who say, yes, there are historical elements and the prophets are situated within a historical context, but the prophets were always looking forward to the day of the Lord. And the prophets received revelation about future events, future end time events. So that would be a futurist angle. And one of the things my ministry is really trying to do is to establish the foundations of a, of a futurist approach to prophecy that is also kind of rooted in the Messianic Jewish perspective. And number three, the, the third major debate that you're right at the intersection of with Daniel 9 is the debate between supersessionists and post-supersessionists. So supersessionists, that's a fancy term for replacement theology. People who believe that God no longer has a plan for Israel per se, he doesn't relate to Israel anymore on the basis of his covenants with the Jewish people, the Jewish patriarchs. Uh, supersessionists do not believe that Israel are still the chosen people. Post-supersessionists on the other hand are those who are saying, no, they are. Romans 9 through 11 is pretty straightforward. Uh, Yeshua and the apostles, they make the most sense within that kind of framework. They are always looking forward to what God would do with the nation of Israel in the future. And so if you think about those three debates, you can start to understand why this passage is so controversial. Because where you land on one of those issues or all three is gonna have major implications in terms of your belief in the Messiah, in terms of your approach to prophecy, in terms of how you think about Israel. So it's really important in that regard because if you can get Daniel 9 right, so many other things just fall into place. And as I was studying this passage over the last number of years, what I realized is one of the ways to settle these debates when we're looking at Daniel 9 is to recognize that it is a jubilee prophecy. So Israel's historical jubilee in Leviticus 25, we don't have to go there quite yet. Israel's historical jubilee is the key to interpreting this prophecy. And if you can understand it as a jubilee prophecy, everything starts to make sense. Everything about the Messiah, everything about the future, everything about God's plan for Israel. It has to be approached as a jubilee prophecy or you're really not even getting out of the gate in terms of a proper interpretation and application. So what I wanna do in the rest of this message is explain what I mean by that. What does it mean that Daniel 9 is a jubilee prophecy? And so we'll start just by looking at the jubilee in a historical and kind of prophetic context how that's related to Daniel 9. And then at the end, we'll draw out some practical points about what I think this prophecy means for us today. And I look forward to the discussion in the Bible study as well. So 
the Jubilee, Leviticus 25. Here's the background text to the Jubilee. God says, you are also to count off seven, seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven, seven Sabbaths of years. That is 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall sound a horn throughout all your land. So you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor harvest its aftergrowth nor gather grapes from its untrimmed vines for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat the produce from the field. Why did Israel have a jubilee? What was God trying to accomplish with the jubilee? So I'll just cover this slide real quick. Basically, the jubilee is a way to stop the establishment of a very powerful land-owning aristocracy in Israel. So it is an institution that God set up to stop any one tribe from gaining too much power and control over the land and also to stop the establishment of a permanent slave class in Israel. So think about it. There were various situations in the ancient world, just like today, that might require someone to sell some of their property or even some of their labor to get out of debt, right? And if you got into really bad debt and you couldn't get out of debt, well, what would have happened is similar to today with you know big banks and all that, one group of people is gonna gain more and more control of all the resources. Because let's say you sell some of your land, you say, oh, I'm on hard times, I need to sell a portion of my land. But you have no way to get your land back. And then someone else down the road, they run into hard times and they go into debt and they have to sell some of their land to the first person who bought your land. And then maybe they have to sell a family member into slavery. So now what you have happening is you have one group of people similar, similar to like what you see in feudal Europe or something like that. You have one group of people or different smaller groups of people who are gaining control of all the land and all the resources and all the labor. And no one can get their land back because you're not gonna have money to buy it back. And no one can get out of slavery because, well, how do you get out of slavery if it's not built into the legislation? So what God does with the Jubilee is he basically says, here's a reset. So if you get yourself into debt, and let's say hypothetically, the Jubilee is every 49 years, and then it's, it's after 49 years, it's the 50th year. So let's say the Jubilee happened to be in five years, and, you were, and your land yielded about $100,000 a year, just to put it into modern dollars here. You could basically sell or lease your land for those five years to repay your debt. And then at the end of that time, you get your land back. So it's not that your debt is being canceled. It's that you're basically selling or leasing your land or your labor to pay off your debts. And so it's basically a really nice way of getting an interest-free loan. And then at the end of it, you, or if it happened after you passed away, your family, your tribe, they get to go back to their land. So the Jubilee is preserving Israel as an independent confederacy of all of these different tribes. The Jubilee is preserving equilibrium, you could say, between the different tribes. 
That's what the Jubilee meant from a historical perspective. Now, you might be aware that Israel never actually observed the Torah or honored the Jubilee in the way that they were supposed to. So what happened, especially after the time of the monarchy, is the exact opposite of what God wanted for Israel as an independent confederacy of tribes. You started having the concentration of all of the land and all the power into the hands of very, very few. And so you read in Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord is rebuking Israel for this very thing. He says, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room so that you live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones. Some translations say mansions without occupants. So what God is saying to Israel when he judges them and sends them into the exile, you can see this also in 2 Chronicles, he's basically saying to them, you haven't been observing the Jubilee, you haven't been preserving justice and equilibrium between the tribes. So you're gonna go into exile. And then when you go into exile, the land is gonna keep its Sabbath. You, you know, all these powerful landholders, they're gonna lose their control of all this land. And the exile was basically like the reset that the Jubilee was meant to be originally, historically. Because of that situation in Israel, because of this situation of concentration of power into the hands of very, very few, what starts to happen as well in the prophetic literature is similar to the way the Davidic monarchy or the Garden of Eden or even the Passover and the Exodus, these, these historical occurrences and institutions start to become symbolic of the Messianic age. So the Israelites and the prophets, they start looking forward to a future fulfillment of the Jubilee. And the Jubilee becomes connected to what the Messiah will do when he comes. So this original kind of historical legal institution about land, it becomes connected to all of these ideals of justice and healing and shalom and rest and deliverance and the judgment of the powers of evil, right? The Jubilee takes on this deeper prophetic meaning and the prophets start looking forward to a future Jubilee Redeemer, a Messiah who would come and fully institute the Jubilee as it was never done historically in Israel. Just like they're looking forward to a future Exodus, which is what my whole first book was about. Just like they're looking forward to the ideal Davidic king. They're looking forward to the reinstitution of the Garden of Eden. The prophets are drawing on all of these motifs from the Torah, and they're saying that these motifs have a future fulfillment. And the Jubilee becomes central in the messianic and end times messaging and expectation of the Hebrew prophets. Best example, one of the best, is Isaiah 61. Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which is kind of a shorthand for the Jubilee, and the day of vengeance of our God. So you see there that the Jubilee is becoming connected to healing, freedom from oppression and slavery, and vengeance upon the powers of evil and the powers of darkness. Amen. 
because before the Lord could bring about the Jubilee, all those evil people who were stopping it from being realized had to be judged. And we'll get into how this becomes connected to other ideas in the prophets. A lot of people know and are kind of aware of the fact that Isaiah 61 is a Jubilee prophecy. It's drawing on the Jubilee. But it's becoming more and more widely accepted, especially among scholars and uh, different teachers, that, as I mentioned, Daniel 9 is a Jubilee prophecy as well. And all of that background is really necessary to kind of understand what's happening in Daniel 9 and why when Gabriel appears to Daniel, he, for the first thing he says is, 70 weeks, 70 weeks have been appointed for your people in your holy city. What does he mean by 70 weeks? 70 weeks is 70 times seven years. So it's not seven times seven like the original Jubilee. The original Jubilee is seven times seven, 49 years. Daniel's 70 weeks, it's 70 times seven, 490 years. So it's 10 Jubilee cycles. So basically, this is a prophetic development of this Jubilee idea. And Gabriel, by saying 77s, he doesn't, he doesn't say 490 years or 71. By saying 77s, he's saying, Daniel, your prayers have been heard. Here's a prophecy that is going to outline the ultimate realization of the Jubilee for your people and your holy city. 70 weeks have been appointed for your people and your holy city. 70 weeks, Daniel, the Jubilee of Jubilees is coming. And these are 10 Jubilee cycles that will lead up to this ultimate celebration and fulfillment of the Jubilee. So in his famous academic article, there's an Old Testament scholar. He's a little bit liberal, but I like what he says here. Uh, ben Zion Wachholder. He says, the 70 weeks are 70 sabbatical cycles equal to 10 jubilees of 490 years. Daniel never uses the term jubilee directly, but his number can only be understood in light of Leviticus 25, which gives seven sabbaticals as the maximum time of sanctioned bondage. The author of Daniel 9 not only assumed the reality of a jubilee period, but without mentioning it directly, made it the most significant unit of the divine divisions of time. Daniel 9, jubilee prophecy, and then he's saying this became the most significant way oftentimes when you get after Daniel and you start looking at other intertestamental second temple period literature. So groups like the Essenes, and I'm not saying any of this literature is canonical or elevated to the same word of God, but what starts happening around you know, 200, 300 years before Yeshua is this Jubilee idea from Daniel 9 gets picked up by all these Jewish groups. Pharisees had it, the Essenes had it, the Zealots had it to some degree. I talk about all of that in my book. But I wanna put this up, a quote from the Testament of Levi, which is probably a like second century AD, but reflects earlier Jewish traditions to give you a window of how Jewish groups in the time of Yeshua are interpreting Daniel 9 as a Jubilee prophecy. So they say, you have heard concerning the 70 weeks, hear also concerning the priesthood for in each Jubilee there shall be a priesthood. So right there, they're linking the 70 weeks to the Jubilee. And now I have learned that for 70 weeks you shall go astray, Israel, 
and profane the priesthood and pollute the sacrifice. Then shall the Lord raise up a new priest. Well, who's that? It's this messianic jubilee deliverer. And to him, all the words of the Lord shall be revealed and he shall execute a righteous judgment upon the earth for a multitude of days. Same idea there, jubilee, justice, judgment. And his star shall arise in heaven as of a king, lighting up the light of the knowledge, lighting up the light of knowledge as the sun of day. And he shall be magnified in the world. He shall shine forth as the sun on the earth, and he shall remove all darkness from under heaven. And there shall be peace in all the earth. The heavens shall exult in his days, and the earth shall be glad, and all the clouds shall rejoice. So Yeshua, when he's born, he comes into this world where everyone is looking forward to this future fulfillment of the Jubilee. All of the Jewish literature, there's a lot more Jewish literature besides just the Testament of Levi, but all these different Jewish groups, they're, they're reading Daniel 9, they're reading the 70 weeks, and they're trying to break up the timeline, and they're trying to understand based on this prophecy, when is the Messiah going to come? When is the Jubilee going to be realized? When is God going to accomplish our redemption? And Daniel 9 is at the center of that in the Second Temple period Jewish literature. So then, for example, when Yeshua comes in Luke chapter 4, you can read Luke chapter 4, Yeshua goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and what's the first thing he says, you know, his first public proclamation? He reads Isaiah 61, and he says, the Lord has anointed me to basically bring healing and to set prisoners free. He's basically saying, I am the Jubilee deliverer. I am the Jubilee priest and judge, the Jubilee redeemer that's anticipated in all the Jewish literature. And people in the time of Yeshua, they would have understood immediately because they had all these types of documents, Testament of Levi, other writings that were circulating at this time. So Yeshua is speaking into his historical moment in time. And, he's, and then he says, today this prophecy, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, he's not saying that the Jubilee completely arrived. You know, we can look around in the world today and we can see that the Jubilee is not completely here. So he's not saying it's over and done with. He's not saying Isaiah 61 is over and done with because there are certain elements of Isaiah 61 that he left out of his reading. But what he's saying is the Jubilee is now arriving in me. The Jubilee is starting to break into this age and through my ministry and through the Holy Spirit, believers can begin to experience the reality of the Jubilee. So that's just really general background on how to approach Daniel chapter nine. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book was just go through all of the individual elements of the prophecy, like every word, every section, everything you come across there, it's connected back to the Jubilee in some way. And that's why I titled the book. It took me a while to actually come to the conclusion of what to title it, but I titled it the 70 weeks Jubilee because again, you can't really get to what this prophecy means and its importance and significance for us as believers strengthening the links in those chains, you can't really get to the meaning of all these elements of Daniel 9 until it's uh, looked at through the lens of the Jubilee. And now I just wanna draw out 
three practical application points. And then, because I can't go, we're not going to go through every single verse or every single element of the prophecy, but I want to draw out three application points that are related back to those three major debates about Daniel 9. Remember the debate between messianic, non-messianic, preterist, futurist, supersessionist, all that. Here's three main points that I think can orient us in the right way. First of all, Daniel 9 is one of the most important messianic and end time prophecies in the Bible. So we as a people, as a messianic Jewish community and as a broader Christian community, for those of us who are concerned with proclaiming the Messiah and who he is and what he came to do, this should be a central part of our testimony to the Jewish community and to the broader community. Now, of course, again, the Jewish community, a lot of them today will say, it's not about the Messiah. So if you go to, you don't have to put up the slide, but if you go back to verse 25, after Daniel says, 70 weeks are appointed for your people in your holy city. And then he says, and you are to know and discern that from the going forth of a word to restore and to build Jerusalem, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks until the anointed one comes, or actually it says until the anointed prince comes. Well, who do you think the, who do you think the anointed prince in a jubilee prophecy would be? Does it make more sense to say that the anointed prince in a jubilee prophecy is just some historical figure? Or does it make more sense to say that the anointed prince in Daniel 9.25 is the Messiah, the anointed one who will accomplish the jubilee? Just like Isaiah 61 said, the Lord has anointed me. And just like all these Jewish groups during the first century knew, they knew this was about the Messiah. The non-Messianic reading there are some Jewish groups maybe who had more of a historical reading, but the majority of early Jewish groups took a messianic reading of Daniel 9. The non-messianic reading only comes about really after the destruction of the second temple, especially through the writings of guys like Josephus and then all the later rabbis and then into the Middle Ages. Because think about it. If you're a Jewish scholar interpreting Daniel 9, and you say this is a messianic prophecy that predicted when the Messiah would come, and it generally predicts around the, the time of the first century. If you're a Jewish scholar and you say this is a messianic prophecy that predicts when the Messiah would come, and it's 70 AD or 135 or you're in the Middle Ages, you would basically have to say, we missed the Messiah. We missed him. We totally missed it. And so instead what happens is the, this d development of this idea in rabbinic literature of like, no, it's not really messianic. We don't really need to deal, to deal with the fact that we missed our Messiah. You know, so driving home the, that fact and understanding how to present Daniel 9 as a messianic prophecy to the Jewish community, I think is gonna be huge in the days to come. Uh, along with that, it's an end times prophecy. Again, going to the preterist idea, the Jubilee is an end times motif. If you look at what happened when a lot of Christians and the church fathers, they said Daniel 9 was fulfilled in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. What does the destruction of the temple have to do with the fulfillment of the Jubilee? That is the exact opposite of what the Jubilee represents. The Jubilee is about restoration, Daniel 9, 24, 
for Daniel's people and his holy city. It's about deliverance for the nation of Israel. It's about when Israel comes into the reality of the Jubilee. How in the world could a Jubilee prophecy be fulfilled completely in 70 AD? It is absolutely absurd. It makes zero sense. But again, the reason a lot of people believe that is because they don't understand that it's a Jubilee prophecy to begin with. So once you get the Jubilee aspect, you're right there at the center of God's messianic plan of redemption and you're right there at the center of God's end times program for Israel and the nations. Number two, following up on that point, Daniel 9 emphasizes the nation of Israel and God's prophetic plan, obviously, including how the Jubilee relates to the future restoration of Israel. And I think this is a really important point because when we're talking about the gospel and we're talking about the good news, you could have a kind of individualized approach to that, my personal salvation, I believe in Yeshua, he died for me, rose from the dead, that's great. But that is not the fullness of the gospel. That's not the fullness of the good news that explains how God is gonna get us back to Eden, how God's gonna restore the earth. And how God's gonna restore the earth is by restoring the nation of Israel to their land. So when Yeshua comes back, he is literally going to do in some way exactly what Joshua did after the conquest of Canaan. He is literally going to bring the tribes back to their land, establish his sanctuary in the midst of Israel, and through that means in the Messianic age, bring salvation and restoration and healing to the entire earth. Uh, Ezekiel 47, thus says the Lord God, you know, when Yeshua comes back, the Messiah reigns, he's gonna say, this shall be the boundary by which you shall divide the land for an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. So there is a lot of actually Jubilee symbolism towards the end of Ezekiel. I won't get into all that. But Ezekiel, same thing as Daniel, same thing as Isaiah, same thing as all these other Jewish writers. He's riffing off the Jubilee and he's saying, the Messiah is gonna come back and restore the tribes. Because the Jubilee is not only about justice and, and equality and right all these kind of ideals. It is about that. But when you go back historically to what the Jubilee was, it was about the nation of Israel receiving their land and their inheritance. And so that is exactly what's gonna happen. And so when we're looking at Daniel 9, it's really a critical prophecy. It's basically like the nail in the coffin of supersessionism. I mean, I don't know of any other, especially more short and concise prophecy that God put in scripture basically just to say supersessionism is a lie. Replacement theology is a lie. Yeah, you can get into Romans 9 through 11 and some of the other stuff, but there, there's long, those are longer passages. There's some complexity. But Daniel 9 is just right there is God saying, the nation of Israel, Daniel's people and his holy city are at the future of everything that will be happening in the future. So it's a great text in terms of responding to the uh, Christian prevalence of uh, the prevalence of supersessionism and replacement theology in Christian circles. And that's the good news. That is the gospel that we are called to preach is the full restoration, the full kingdom when Yeshua comes back to the land of Israel. Number three, believers are mediators of the Jubilee even now. 
through a relationship with Yeshua. As I said in Luke uh, 4, Yeshua says the Jubilee is already breaking into this age. So it is now, but not yet. And I was thinking about our culture and how relevant the words of the prophets are going to become within our culture, especially as our culture drifts further and further away from our Judeo-Christian, really Protestant foundations uh, that really started to shift after World War II. Because basically what you have now is that the impulse in the human heart for the Jubilee, God has planted that in everyone. Every single person desires that restoration and that healing and justice. I mean, just look at the, the commentary in the news. We all know of social justice and how that term's been beaten to death. Everyone longs for this. But what you have in the culture now is basically the counterfeit version, I would say. The counterfeit version of, of a jubilee. A counterfeit version of the kingdom. And so instead of... Here's the prophetic scriptures. Here's how God has laid out the entire trajectory of history. His kingdom is coming. Repent, believe, get right with him, get plugged in, get in line with his prophetic plan. Instead of that, you have this counterfeit version, which is we're gonna bring utopia through whatever political neo-Marxist, LGBTQ, uh, we can, if we can only get rid of what do they call it, heteronormativity, if you know what that is. Okay, if we can only dismantle the family. This is what they believe because fundamentally they are utopian. They have an eschatology, like that means a doctrine of the end. Progressives are called progressives, not because they actually are progressive. They're called progressives because they believe that history is naturally progressing towards a utopian ideal. And if only they can implement these different agendas at the legislative level and the family level and societal level, if only they can implement these different agendas, they're gonna realize utopia. They're gonna bring about their own jubilee of justice and all that. I would say that we have a much better message to communicate to the world. And I would say that when you look at the culture and the neo-Marxism and everything they're trying to do, that only leads to more injustice and more pain and more suffering and more chaos. And we as believers, we have the true message of healing that people are looking for. So we can use the prophetic scriptures and what they say about the kingdom and God's plan, we can tap in to the longing in the hearts of people around us, our neighbors and say, hey, look, I got, a better, I got a better version of that for you. That's not all wrong, you know, yeah, we want justice, but it's not all wrong, but here's a better version. Let's study prophecy. Let's study Genesis chapter three, one of the first messianic end times prophecies. Let's study Genesis nine. Let's study Genesis 15. Let's study Genesis 49. Numbers 24, Deuteronomy 32 and 33. That's the end times framework of Moses. Then we can go to the prophets, Ezekiel 38 to 39, the visions of Daniel. You wanna really get plugged in to what God is doing? Let's dig into the words of the prophets that have already been substantiated through the first coming of the Messiah and will be substantiated more and more in the days ahead as we see things unfolding at the geopolitical level. And 
I just uh, about finished reading a book that kind of illustrates this idea of bringing the Jubilee into your everyday life. I finished reading this book almost by this guy named Rod Dreher. It's called Live Not By Lies. I highly recommend it. And he's basically giving a cultural analysis and he's comparing modern developments to the development of uh, Marxism and communism in Russia and the former Soviet Union. But then he's explaining how the church and Christians responded to Marxism living in the Soviet Union and all that. And he tells this amazing story of this uh, brother. I think it was in Russia, somewhere over there. He wasn't a minister. He wasn't a priest or rabbi or anything. And he gets thrown into prison for his faith because he was too vocal. And he gets thrown into prison and he's thrown in there with some really rough characters because not everyone who was thrown into prison by the uh, Soviet communists, not everyone, they weren't all Christians, you know, there were different factions and... So he gets thrown in there with all these really rough characters and he basically, he's in prison and he basically says, look guys, God has put me in here to uh, preach the gospel to you and to hear your confessions. <laughs> and he says, I'm not a priest. So this is, you know, in the Eastern Orthodox traditions and Catholicism, you gotta be a priest to take the confessions. I actually love the idea of formal confession, but that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. But he basically goes in there, he says, I'm not a priest, but... God has put me in here to hear your confess confessions. So they all just start unloading on him, confessing, confessing. And they've done some crazy stuff. <laughs> but this guy is ministering to them and saying, you know, God will forgive you, you just have to believe. And then the, uh, the guards and the people running the prison, they're like, we gotta shut this guy down. You know, he's way out of control. So they put him in solitary confinement. And... One night he's in solitary confinement and they used to come to your prison cell in the morning, early in the morning, because they, they wanted to mess with your head and they didn't want people to be able to sleep. So they'd come and wake you up early in the morning and then you'd go and you'd be hanged. And now this guy, he's in solitary confinement. And one morning, very early, he feels someone nudge him awake and he looks in his cell and there's no one there. And he's presumably has no doors, no windows, anything like that. And God shows him an open vision. You know, he can just see it of these prisoners who were being led away to their execution. And he can only see their backs. He can't see their faces. And this starts happening to him over and over. I don't know how many times, but multiple times, God wakes him up or an angel wakes him up in the middle of the night and shows him these men being led away to their deaths. And he's like, why, why is this happening? Why am I seeing this, Lord? And however it happened, he basically came to the realization that God was showing him that because God wanted him to know that his ministry was successful and that his preaching and proclamation had an impact on those men. And God was showing him that he had those, those men in his hand. And even though they're being led away to their deaths, God was saying, they're mine. I, they belong to me. You have accomplished your work. And I don't know of a better illustration or example of what it means to bring the reality of the kingdom and the reality of the Jubilee into our daily lives. And that's an example to follow. And that is why I think it's so important to apply ourselves 
to the study of the scriptures and the, the words of the biblical prophets in particular. So I'll leave you with this again, quote from Gabriel and the apostle Peter. Gabriel said, give heed to the message and gain an understanding of this vision. Peter says, we have the prophetic word made more sure because the Messiah has already come once and fulfilled prophecy. We have the prophetic word made more sure. We have the confirmation that everything God wrote about in the prophets will happen to which you do well to pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. As we approach the return of our Messiah, our King, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, there are few things that are more worthy of our attention than the prophetic words of the biblical prophets. Shabbat Shalom.